John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. I'm simply going to prove to Hindus here and Muslims there, that the only devils in the world are those running around in our own hearts. And that is where all our battles ought to be fought. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our exploration of Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California. One half of the cinephiles and very excited to be walking back into one of my favorite films ever, Steve. And, and now we're going to deal with the ramifications of what happened there. It really is a brutal ending. And I'm glad we had a bit of an intermission to sort of reckon with it before returning once again to these spectacularly beautiful and opulent evidence of the buildings of the British Raj in India. Forgive me, gentlemen, but you must understand that His Majesty's government and the British people repudiate both the massacre and the philosophy that prompted it. We see we're at a meeting and Nehru and Jinnah and Gandhi are all there sitting at a big table and Gandhi very intensely says, Excuse me, Your Excellency, it is our view that matters have gone beyond legislation. We think it is time you recognized that you are masters in someone else's home. Strong statement, putting it right on the table, Steve, straight up saying, you know, and he's saying it as respectfully yep. and as uh, um, professionally as possible. And he's saying it's just time, you know, and the British are still being like, well, we'll give you this and uh, we'll give you that. Uh, is that enough? And he's like, no, you don't get it. Get the fuck out. <laughs> you know, you don't get it. So, And contrast this guy with the young guy we met in South Africa. Right. I mean, he is so self-contained yeah. and confident and just speaking the truth. Despite the best intentions of the best of you, you must, in the nature of things, humiliate us to control us. General Dyer is but an extreme example of the principle. It is time you left. Yeah, and here's the thing. This is a fascinating um, philosophy or approach mentally, right? And for anybody who's listening, these people vilified what Dyer did. 
they're choosing or they're endeavoring to separate themselves from Dyer's actions when in fact their mentality, their approach, their point of view, Dyer is the natural next step. It's an extension. And so they want to believe that they don't have, that they don't, they, they, they couldn't possibly go that direction. But Dyer is the example of the fact that it is. So the entire thing is corrupt because Dyer is an, is a, an extension of that corruption, indirect result of that corruption, or maybe even a direct result of that corruption. So therefore, the whole thing is dirty and must stop. Yeah, I, 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 I think I might be just kind of restating what you just said, but, but I, I, to me, it's like such an important distinction of, yeah, for the British, Dyer is an aberration, right? What Gandhi is saying is Dyer is an extension of a yes. system that is yes. inherently corrupt. Yeah, um, and I think there are direct uh, parallels with things that we struggle with in this country and people that see these extreme examples, I won't go into what they are and they go, that's just an aberration as yeah. opposed to that is part of a systemic problem. Yep. 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 Great point, Steve. With respect, Mr. Gandhi, without British administration, this country would be reduced to chaos. All right. I want to address this. Yes, please. So this is the, this is the story that I grew up on that, mm -hmm. Yes, England, Great Britain did conquer India. Yes, it was time that they left. Yes, there was abuses. But they also brought British justice and British bureaucracy and British all of this efficiency in that India was really chaotic and messed up. And without them, they were in big trouble. All right. Here's what I learned. I, I was recently uh, at a lecture of Ooh. a professor who was discussing the beginnings of European imperialism in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. So, and he, one of the things he talked about was when the British came to India. When the British came to India, India represented 25% of the world's wealth. Wow. Great Britain represented 2% <laughs> at that time. They were not a powerful country. India was hugely wealthy. In the next couple of hundred years, Great Britain removed $45 trillion worth of goods from India. That's what created the British Empire, was them stealing the wealth of India. Yeah. That is those that number, $45 trillion. This is really well documented. You can look at it a lot of places. That is what makes the British Empire what it is. Well, and this is, and I know some of you are going to get fucking pissed at me, so okay, get pissed at me, but this is why I just absolutely hate Temple of Doom. When people are like, oh, it's the best of the three, and I'm just like, do you not get what is going on in this movie? Like, what the representative nature of it all? I mean, this idea that the white man is to come in to fight the evil forces, to keep this, it's just so ridiculous. And it's the same thing. It's the artifact. It's the money. It's the something of treasure. And so to me, this is where I come to with this whole thing. People don't have to understand the historical aspect of it all. Hey, I know it's just a movie. I get it. But when people say they like it so much, I feel like they're missing what is actually happening in the movie because they love Harrison Ford so much or they love the Indiana Jones character so much. But that is a microcosm of what you see. No matter how good the intentions are, it's still in the end. What it's all about is this treasured artifact 
and, and what have you. So it just it frustrates me on so many on so many levels. And the way the Indians are portrayed in the right. movie, and certainly one of the actors, as you mentioned, from Gandhi plays Khan plays the evil guy in in the film. But it's just the way it's portrayed. You know, they're eating monkey brains. What a what a it's just it's so in so they're many shown ways, as savages. They're shown as savages. Yes, it's yeah. so insulting the way they're shown taking hearts out of people like come on it's just ridiculous and i get it i know it's a 1940s story blah 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 but it does affect people's points of views and i think that's where i kind of get upset about people who want to tell me how great temple of doom is and ignore the what's actually happening in the film it's funny we just had a conversation during our short and we were talking about wolfgang peterson who we just lost and i brought up this idea of the difference between craftsmanship and art and the idea yeah. that craftsmanship is something you can apply in a whole bunch of different places, but art has to come personally. Yeah. Um, I think that applies perfectly to Temple of Doom because <laughs> I agree 100% with what you're saying thematically, yeah. how it represents Indian culture, that it is the white hero coming in to the savage, darker skinned people, right. you know, that's stealing their treasures, which the, you know, the Europeans and Americans have stolen everyone's treasure. I totally agree. The craftsmanship of that movie is excellent. That's is that I think that musical number at the beginning, the the um, bug scene, the you know, sure. hey, they're look, all Lenny Riefenstahl made a great film in Triumph. I mean, you know, I'm sure, sure, yes. yeah. So, so well, and I I won't put this at Triumph for the Will level. <laughs> just, no, but your the, point is well I'm taken. Yeah, yeah, that is beautiful. <laughs> she did know how to make movies. They yeah. are well crafted. Um, but needless to say, this idea that we've been sold whether it's in Africa or India or all over the world that the white people came in and were civilized when in fact they were just stealing all the gold and resources from those places. That's, that's something that has to get re-examined. Yeah, I agree. I beg you to accept that there is no people on earth who would not prefer their own bad government to the good government of an alien power. I love that line. Love that. And this is, why did we have trouble in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Vietnam? It's the same thing. We would rather prefer our own bad government than the good government of an alien power. And the response just shows the level of delusion. But yes, sir, India is British. We're hardly an alien power. What I love is the reaction of all the Indians at the table. They they all just are like, you idiot. Like, they look at him as if, like, oh, yep, this is what we've had to deal with, this yeah. idea that they think they're Indian, <laughs> which yep. is insane. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and then they bring up this issue, which is going to be an issue going forward, of conflict between Hindus and Muslims. Yes. All nations contain religious minorities. Like other countries, ours will have its problems. But they will be ours, not yours. How do you propose to make them yours? You don't think we're just going to walk out of India? There's a, so much swagger yeah. and confidence in the way Gandhi responds. Yes. In the end, you will walk out. And this is the thing you brought up before. Because 100,000 Englishmen simply cannot control 350 million Indians if those Indians refuse to cooperate. And look, I mean, I think what's so funny to think about in this moment is, too, is what... <clears throat> What his mentor said is, when I saw you as a law clerk, I did not know you would come back. And all this thing that he says, it's the same thing. Look at Einstein. Einstein was a patent clerk. And, yes. you know, just because you start out, Grant was an alcoholic and lost depression, all this kind of thing. Just because you start out in a certain place, just because you're there, does not mean that once you finally find your path, your true genius won't show up. 
And certainly in Einstein's case, it did. Certainly in Gandhi's case, it did. As you said, in this back and forth with the British, I know it's a movie and whatever, it's done for dramatic purposes. But the intention is what actually happened. And that's what he's saying. That is exactly what you will do. You will walk out because it will be too much. And he is speaking of it from a place of utter confidence because he has already intelligently analyzed all the possible angles. And unless they want to sink into brutality and and really stain their name in the world, there's no way the British Empire will have any other choice but to eventually leave if he continues his campaign. He's successful with this nonviolent campaign. And as he makes this extremely confident statement, peaceful, nonviolent, non-cooperation, till you yourself see the wisdom of leaving. And then we cut to... Bunch of British guys laughing at him. An extraordinary little man, isn't it? Non-violence, non-cooperation. For a moment, I was afraid they were actually going to do something. They just can't see it. No, they can't. Of course they can't see it because, you know, at the time, why would they see it? How could they feel threatened by this? Never mind that they worship in a church that is about a man walking around in sandals, preaching, loving one another, was able to change the world. You know, there's, there's where the separation comes in their minds. It's like, you know, you don't you, you don't understand. You, know, you can't make these uh, ideas connect. And it's fascinating to underestimate the people who have a kind of determination and a vision. And of course, they're played for villains. And so they have to have those moments. But they're not t- mustache twirling. You can understand why they feel the way they feel because they do think they're swaggering around. Uh, um, as a big boxer in 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 a, in the ring with a lightweight, but that lightweight is a lack, actually a lot smarter than that heavyweight, and that's going to bear itself out as the film goes along. The number of people on the British side in this that were born on third base and think they had a triple, you know, <laughs> it's like the reason you're so confident is you're part of the British Empire, right? You have the reason you shield. feel superior. It's not because of what you did or what you earned or what you're capable of. It's because you're part of the British Empire. But you think you earned it. We cut to this huge, amazing shot where uh, his wife, Katsurba, is giving this speech. And um, I mean, the scale of this location and how many extras, it's just amazing to look at it. And her speech is about cloth. When Gandhiji and I were growing up, women wove their own cloth. But now there are millions who have no work because those who can by all they need from England. I say with Gandhiji, there is no beauty in the finest cloth if it makes hunger and unhappiness. If someone said to you, hey, we're going to have people make their own clothes and that's what's going to overthrow the British government, you'd be like, that's nuts. <laughs> Gandhi stands, we hear them chanting, long live Gandhiji. My message to you is the message I have given to your brothers everywhere. To gain independence, we must prove worthy of it. I think this is critical. And we saw this when we did Malcolm X, and we certainly see this with Martin Luther King Jr. Any time that someone in the protest misbehaves, yeah. that gives a weapon to the other side to suppress them. Yep. There must be Hindu-Muslim unity always. Second, no Indian must be treated as the English treat us. We must remove untouchability from our hearts and from our lives. What a great through line from where, 
you know, uh, he'd had that conversation with his wife in the yep. first part, you know, the idea of untouchables. And you spoke, you spoke about it as a class system. Yeah. And this is, this is where he evolved and there was tremendous resistance. I mean, if you were a member of the untouchable cast, you couldn't have, there were only certain jobs you could have. You couldn't marry people that weren't in that cast. You couldn't go to a Hindu temple. You couldn't step foot in the temple. If you were in that cast. English factories make the cloth that makes our poverty. All those who wish to make the English see, bring me the cloth from Manchester and Leeds that you wear today, and we will light a fire that will be seen in Delhi and in London. And if, like me, you are left with only one piece of homespun, wear it with dignity. And we cut to a bonf- huge bonfire with people throwing their, their factory-made clothes onto it. The soldiers watch. From the- well, the soldiers watch. Can you imagine... Going to poor people and saying, take this one possession you have. They don't have a lot and burn it. Burn everything except for one version of it. Yep. But that also shows the commitment. Exactly. They're willing to do it. And that should, I'm sure it shook the halls of power there in the British establishment. Well, because if people are willing to do that, they're willing to do anything. It's you, you're saying you cannot control these people. Yep. Um, we're at a train station. I love that Patel arrives apologizing because he went second class instead of third class. <laughs> and then they start talking about this woman. And we see this woman getting off the train with all sorts of luggage. A Miss Slade from London. She's been writing to Gandhiji for years. She's the daughter of an English admiral. And they at first are kind of mocking, you know, what is this person with all this luggage who looks wealthy? What is she going to have to do? How is she going to handle Gandhi in the ashram? And what they don't notice is this other woman in a blue shawl that's standing nearby and they say Miss Slade. And of course, it isn't the woman with all the luggage. It's the woman in the blue shawl that is the one here to see Gandhi. You'd be Mr. Kalmbach. Oh, and you, you would be Miss Slade? I prefer the name Gandhiji has given me, Miraben. So this is Geraldine James. Yes. She was not a particularly well-known actor. She was acting. She had a really good friend who was a casting director who was casting a little movie called Gandhi. (laughs) And this casting director comes to Geraldine and says, do you know any uh, very tall British actresses that are about this age? And Geraldine says, yeah, me. (laughs) And the casting director is like, no, 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 no. We need a name. Sorry. (laughs) You're very good, but sorry. And so they bring in every English and Australian actress they could think of for this part couldn't find one Geraldine goes off on a vacation and gets ridiculously sunburned wow so she is in serious very fair skin she's in a lot of yeah. pain the minute she gets home she gets a call from the casting director saying hey you remember that part <laughs> Richard Attenborough and Ben Kingsley would like to meet you tomorrow wow so she shows up to have lunch with Richard Attenborough according to her description just like cover like skin peeling just looking terrible because it's horrible sunburn yeah and she gets the part um one interesting thing about this is that miraben at this time was still alive the real miraben right right where they were making the film yes yeah and attenborough had had many meetings with her and had recorded those meetings with miraben on cassette and geraldine naturally said i want to meet her yeah and Attenborough said, absolutely not, no way. Oof. You can't meet her. I don't want any imitation. Um, you know, you, you, you're just going to play your own part. And she says, well, 
you have those tapes. You said you recorded the conversation. Can I at least listen to the tapes so I can hear what your vo- her voice sounded like? And he said, nope, absolutely not. You cannot listen to the tapes. Wow. The day they finished shooting, he handed her the tapes, puts them on, and what she hears is the voice of a woman speaking in a strong Indian accent. Oh, no. Because she had spent 40 years in India. Right. So Attenborough, yeah. so Attenborough didn't want to hear her because he didn't want her I- imitated because he wanted her to sound British. Smart. Very smart. Yep. Because Attenborough knows actors. Yep. And so she would do that. Yep. It was ironic. Her next project was Jewel in the Crown, where she plays the other side of it. British, mm. a British uh, person there during World War II in India, mm. uh, dealing with the changes that are happening with the revolution. So certainly establish yourself uh, in those two projects. And then, of course, for those of you who know the Sherlock Holmes movies with uh, with um, Robert Downey Jr., she is the uh, uh, the landlady. She's the landlady oh. in those films. That's Geraldine James as well. What the hell's the name of that? What's her character? I always forget with the Sherlock Holmes Mrs. Hudson? Yeah, Mrs. Hudson. That's it. Yeah, Miss Hudson. So that's what that she was some Ar- that was some Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> Maybe I should go on the Schmodown, man. <laughs> sure. Literary Schmodown. I think you could be all right. That's I'll do it. yeah. I'm still not good at pulling pulling out things like that in general, but um so uh we're with Gandhi, he's spinning, and by the way, Ben Kingsley had a lot of trouble learning how to spin. He could spin okay after a while, but when he had to say lines while spinning, it was really hard. Well, God gave him 10 thumbs, 11, 11. <laughs> really? And Mirabin sees him and you can see she's just in awe of this person. And she goes to kiss his feet and he pulls her up and says, come, 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 come. You will be my daughter. You know, the, the film takes on this kind of noble vibe as soon as she shows up, almost a regal, noble, respectful tone, even amidst some of the stuff that happens when she's around her performance is so solid and the energy that she exudes, this kind of lived in energy, it is a fantastic performance that you might not notice in a film like this, but it is so essential to show why she was immediately respected and taken in by Gandhi's people. Uh, and she did that for a number of years. Um, and she was driven by another or she followed another compass in her life than other people did who were born into her station, you know? And so, and she was committed to it until her death. And it's fascinating to, which, and she died the year the film came out and it's fascinating oh. to explore her life and that she was consistent. This wasn't like her visiting the other side of the tracks for a while and then went back to being society woman. No, she stayed in this path for 30 years. Then eventually I think moved back to England for just a short period of time and then out to Austria Mm. and lived in small towns in Austria for a number of years, uh, doing the things that she was doing and helping the causes she was helping. And then that's where she passed away in 1982. So I think there's a thing about studying this woman's history that I think Geraldine James brought to the performance, this kind of determination and belief and softness to her that was really incredible to watch through these sequences here in the film. You know, what just occurred to me is that I'm trying to think of how to say it, but we, we tend to see things, particularly in movies uh, like that things like majesty or royalty or dignity, that those are innate qualities that yeah. they are born into you. You are the king. So obviously I will respond to you like a king Yeah, you must be the king. instead of something that's earned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we see in this movie is the slow process of him earning majesty. 
Yes. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Good point. Yes. Because by this point, he's like a king, you know, in his father strange. Of the nation. Yeah. He's the father of the nation. But he has earned it. We've seen step by step how he gets to the place where he gets this respect from Miraben and everyone else. And what we hear is that there is rioting. Some rioting broke out between Hindus and Muslims. Violent, terrible. Whether it was provoked, I don't know. But it gave them an excuse to impose martial law throughout Bengal. Again, this is why discipline matters so much. And he looks over at Miraben and we hear... What do the workers in England make of what we're doing? It must have produced hardship. It has. But you'd be surprised. They understand. They really do. Good. It's a nice moment. And he says to her, Ba'a, which is his wife, will teach you how to spin. Uh, and she wants to march. And he goes, no, spin first. <laughs> and let others do the marching for a while. <laughs> and Ba'a says, I love this line. I'll teach you all our foolishness. And you must teach me yours. <laughs> it's nighttime. We're at a, a, a torch-lit march, and we're hearing chanting, long live Gandhiji, that we've heard before. Yeah. We go past some soldiers, and then there's sort of some stragglers, essentially, yeah. with this march. They get roughed up a little bit by the soldiers, and it escalates. Yeah, because they cry for the people who had gone on ahead to come back. and To come back. Yeah. And you could feel the dread just oh, building. Yeah. And it, there's this moment where you think it's going to maybe be okay. <laughs> but then this one guy, his, one of the soldiers took his cloak or something like that. Yeah. And he rushes to get it back. And now it really escalates. And suddenly the soldiers realize they're way outnumbered. Yeah. And they back up into like the police station. And then this crowd with torches bust the windows of the police station and starts throwing their torches into the building, which catches on fire. And they start chanting it as it burns. And this alone is super scary. Yeah. And then the guys come out to escape the fire and they beat them to death, essentially. And one guy maybe even chops his head off. Or yeah. yeah. There's children watching this violence. And it's the same thing we did before of like right in the middle, we have this cut to silence and Gandhi. And hearing about this news. What can we do? We must end the campaign. Yeah. And they're shocked. Of course. And he, yeah, what's great is they're all sitting in chairs. And there's Gandhi sitting on the carpet in that standard way that he sat, you know, with kind of leaning to the left with his legs kind of in a fetal position there. And he's saying it very, very calmly. We must end the movement. And of course... Yeah. Jin and others are upset about this idea because so many people have sacrificed so much. And, and, and Nehru is it's so fun to watch Nehru in the film because he he does not make strong statements all the time. He watches. And you can yeah. say his face is conflicted because I think he feels he understands Jinnah and the rest of the guy's points of views, but he also loves his friend Gandhi and, and respects him as the father of the nation and understands his point of view. So he's just kind of observing you know, um, as this debate is going on. And I think this is connected to earlier. He can't tell the British that Dyer is an extension of their approach to things and not also take responsibility when exactly. a march of his is an extension and causes violence. That's an extension of him. And he even says, maybe I riled them up too much. You know. Um, and Jinnah says, After what they did at the massacre, it's only an eye for an eye. And Gandhi's response is one of the great lines of all time. An eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. 
I think everyone needs to settle in with that piece of wisdom a little bit. Yeah, you're not wrong, brother. And they're going like people have made the sacrifices. They burned their clothes. They've gone through all this suffering and you just want them to stop? If we obtain our freedom by murder and bloodshed, I want no part of it. Papu, you are the father of the nation. Today, I see no ground in that for anything but shame. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Gandhi feels as powerfully for the policemen that died as he did for the people that died in the massacre from Dyer. He even says that. Tell that to the the families of the policemen who died. You know, tell them them your thoughts and your points of views. The whole nation is marching. They wouldn't stop even if we asked them to. I will ask, and I will fast as a penance for my part in arousing such emotions, and I will not stop until they stop. So Gandhi has just said, I'm going to stop eating until I die, unless they stop. I mean, could you imagine if someone said that today? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it would be fascinating for sure. I mean, I don't think any, any figure alive in our world has the stature. I mean, this is why Gandhi had to be such a good person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, despite the criticisms, and they're valid that we've discussed about him before, mm-hmm. he was striving to be a truly, truly good person. If he wasn't, people wouldn't give him this respect and, and be so concerned about him fasting. No, that's a great point. Gandhiji, people are aroused. They won't stop. If I die, perhaps they will stop. So... This movie doesn't go into fasting very much, but it, it, it makes it seem like it's just this thing he did every once in a, a couple of times. <laughs> fasting is the thing he did all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he did it, A, just as part of his process of freeing right. himself from desire and of meditating and of his religious practice. But he also, if his son misbehaved, he would go, well, I'm going to fast to take penance for your bad behavior. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. This happened all the He did a lot of fasting. That is horrific, man. No, I'm telling you that the guilt he laid on his eldest son Jesus. and his whole family and anybody else like, oh, oh, OK, you think it's OK to go uh, smoke a cigarette? Well, I guess I'll fast for three days. What? <laughs> no, I mean, that was totally I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating no, a little don't bit. Don't do but, it. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Um, it's later and Miraben walks across the ashram and we hear violent coughing. And there we find Gandhi, who is obviously quite ill from his fasting. And she kind of comforts him and she's and she holds some water for him and says, there's a little lemon juice in it. That's all my understanding. He did not drink water with lemon juice, lemon juice, water with lemon juice. That was how he broke his fast. Oh, because he even says in his book, uh, my experiments with truth, which is kind of his autobiography that he discovered when he first he did his first serious long fast in South Africa to protest things that were going on there. Right. Um, and what he discovered the first time he did it was he tried just eating normally right at the end of the fast. And that was a big, big mistake because you got really, really sick. Right. And that this is what he, he done it so much that he learned what to do to get off the fast. And I think oh. the first thing was water with a little lemon juice in it. There was a telegram. Almost everywhere it has stopped. When it is everywhere, then my prayers would be answered. Do you find me stubborn? I love her response. She says, I don't know. I know that you are right. I don't know that this is right. I love that she says that. I know that you are right. 
I don't know that this is right. But she creates the space for it to possibly be right. But she doesn't know yet. So it's a very honest answer. It's great. I think that's a really fascinating because this is the th- of course you know Gandhi is right that the violence should stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Right. Starving yourself to death. I mean, wow. And she leans in as he tries to talk, and in a whisper he says, "When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won." There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it. Always. John, think of that always. I try. I'm not Gandhi, though. I, I, it, I think it's really hard right now yeah. to think of that. Yeah, it is. It is. You're right. Mm. Um, I think up to this point in history, Gandhi is correct yeah. that in the end, all the tyrants fail, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's, it seems hard to believe that at this particular moment for me, sure. you know, um, Nehru's there. He kneels smiling, takes Gandhi's hand and says, all of Congress has called for the end of non-cooperation. There's not been one demonstration. All over India, people are praying that you will end the fast. They're walking in the streets, offering garlands to the police and British soldiers. Wow. I know. Can you imagine that? I mean, again, think of our world and just take one group that hates another group and then picture them offering garlands to that group. Yeah. (laughs) I love Gandhi's response. Perhaps I've overdone it. (laughs) (laughs) And then what the actor playing Nehru does in the next moment as that smile just turns into weeping as he holds Gandhi's hand. I got to be honest with you. You know, you said in the part two, you walked away. Um, I had to stop the film and cry for a little while after this scene, to be honest with you, because I mean, he loves him so much. Yeah. And there are people in your life that you love so much and they, you know, when they go through something really tough or go through something really strong, you, uh, you know, you appreciate them and their will. And um, I don't know why it made me cry, but it did just to see the genuine love he had for him. And the, you know, the chemistry between them was fantastic. Here is my note in my notes at that moment. Yeah. That really fucking got to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had the same reaction. Yeah, Yeah. And it's because, yeah. It's the smile into the uncontrollable weeping at this person. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being in the presence of someone like this. And also because Nehru, as I said earlier, Nehru isn't one to take sides strongly. He, he presents arguments, but you don't see him take sides strongly. He believes in Gandhi. He's the one bringing the young guys to Gandhi in the first time when they go in the car and it doesn't really work out. But then the young guys show up after yep. he speaks the speech from college. They show up to help him. So there, he's he got such a commitment to Gandhi, such a reverence to Gandhi. Um, it's not sycophancy, but it's certainly a reverence. And so, you know, like a father to a son in a way, which is so strange because they're contemporaries, yet he feels that Gandhi is called to a bigger purpose. And so there's a such a respect that he must have for him that comes through. And again, phenomenal acting, phenomenal okay. performances, you know, in that moment, really showing you the weight of their relationship. In a, just a fucking few seconds. Yeah. You get it, you know. 
Um, it's later. Gandhi's obviously beginning to recover. It's outside at the ashram, and some soldiers show up. I'm sorry, Mr. Gandhi, sir, but you're under arrest. And the reaction of like, this man just stopped a revolution. <laughs> yeah. Like, why are you arresting him now? I know we're not ready for my kind of independence. If I'm sent to jail, perhaps that is the best protest our country can make at this time. And if it helps India, I've never refused His Majesty's hospitality. <laughs> Just like we said before, Steve, he's, you know, he's a master politician under everything else. So in his mind, he's like, well, this can only help us if there's any issues. The, the, there was something I read, I think it was in Malcolm Gladwell's book, which is David and Goliath, where he talks oh. a lot about uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Right. And the thing that I didn't understand until reading that book was they consciously put themselves in positions where they could be abused by the police oh, yeah. uh, because they wanted to, to film it. That was their weapon. Their, if, they, if the police just let them march, they actually would fail. Right. They wanted to get stopped. Well, later on in the film, we'll see that exchange with Gandhi and Walker, Martin Sheen's character, mm. where he says to him, you know, well, what happens if they don't react? Walker says to Gandhi, what happens if they don't react? He goes, well, it's our job to spark a reaction. That's yeah. what the civil nonviolent person must do leading the movement is to spark a reaction from those who are seeking to control them or seeking to take away their rights. And so don't get it twisted. It's always... Uh, manu uh, manufactured geared towards getting a reaction from them so they can come to the conclusion that it's yeah too much and they must remove themselves from the situation we're at another trial the judge this time is trevor howard trevor howard who we saw we saw him in brief encounter we saw him in the third man and uh for movies that we did oh i i think he's in this one is he not one of the elders of cal of uh krypton Oh, is he? I think he is. I be I believe you. I would never doubt you. <laughs> you should doubt me every once in a while. In the third man? Who is he in the third? Oh, right. He's the, he's the cop. Yes, he's the cop. I forgot. And yes, Superman, first elder. Yes, I didn't remember that at all. Yeah. Uh, this really happened, what is about to happen. This is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. um, we bring Gandhi to the bar. He's standing there. And this is, by the way, where my note is. Man, Ben Kingsley's transformation throughout this movie might be the best of all time. Oh, yeah. And the crazy thing that happens is as Gandhi comes up to the bar, the judge stands. Yep. And when the judge stands, everyone's got to stand. <laughs> and you could see the looks go around that people are shocked that he's standing for Gandhi. By the way, I wonder if Attenborough was influenced by um, To Kill a Mockingbird in this scene because you see him walking there and then you see the um, Indians, as totally. you can see the African-Americans in the film up in the balcony, reacting to things that are happening there on the floor. Yeah. The, the stand up, your father's passing. Yes. Yeah. That, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I totally see it. And what we hear is a quote is the, the prosecuting attorney reads a quote from Gandhi. Sedition must become our creed. We must give no quarter, nor can we expect any. Do you deny writing it? Not at all. And I will save the court's time, my lord, by stating under oath that to this day I believe non-cooperation with evil is a duty and that British rule of India is evil. And I love that the prosecution's like, prosecution rests. They're like, we win. What have you? 
<laughs> I have no defense, my lord. I'm guilty as charged. And if you truly believe in the system of law you administer in my country, you must inflict on me the severest penalty possible. So Gandhi is saying, hey, if you believe in these laws, you got to send me to prison. Yeah, I did it. And the judge says, and this is a, my understanding, this is a direct quote of what this judge actually said. It is impossible for me to ignore that you are in a different category from any person I have ever tried. Or I'm likely to try Nevertheless, it is my duty to sentence you to six years imprisonment. It's a huge reaction around the courtroom. And even Gandhi has a reaction. Like, he swallows just a little bit. Like, you could see just a little of a, uh, I have to go to prison. Yeah. If, however, His Majesty's government should, at some later date, see fit to reduce the term, no one will be better pleased than I. And then again... The judge stands. God forbid there be some nobility in our world. God forbid there be humanity in our justice system. God forbid there be something like that in our world. Can you imagine if a judge pulled that nowadays? Oh, my God. People go insane. Well, if they're on one side. They'd be as active as judges. It's just um, – it's a shame. We used to respect humanity. We used to respect authenticity and realness. And, res- and just respect overall for a person's point of view or a person who is fighting to be taken out from being ruled, you know, and. Yeah. and well, right at this very well, moment, yeah. right at this very moment, there is a person who I disagree with politically in almost every single way. Yeah. Who has spent the last many months as part of a trial investigating something and trying to do an honorable job. And yeah. that person today, yeah. literally today, is probably going to lose their primary election and will yes. not be able to return to Congress. Yeah. So there are people that honorably want to do what's right. That's true. Even people I really disagree with. Yeah, that's a fair point. And they sentence him to six years. Yeah. By the way, there were articles written in London at this time that said basically with this six-year sentence, Gandhi has become one of the great might-have-beens of history. Oh, they thought Gandhi was over. <laughs> it's some years later, and then we get a scene which is, I, I could only describe it as a, here's a bunch of catch-up on exposition of here's yeah. a bunch of information of what's been going on. But we do get Martin Sheen back, yes. and he's with Richard Griffiths, who's in tons and tons of stuff, including Harry Potter movies and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, And they talk about sort of what's been going on and that he met him in South Africa. And then we cut to a scene that could be cut out of the movie and you would never know because it doesn't involve this, move the story forward in any way. And it would be such a loss because it is so lovely. It is Gandhi and his wife reenacting their wedding. Yeah. For Griffiths and for Walker. Yeah. 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 When they were 13, reenacting their wedding when they were 13. Take the seventh step that we may ever live as friends. You are my best friend, my highest guru, and my sovereign lord. And then I put a sweetened wheat cake in her mouth. And I put a sweetened wheat cake in his mouth. And with that, we were pronounced man and wife. And it is so sweet. And so cute and so such a bond of love between the two of them. Yeah. I think it's 
It, that's what I mean. It's like story-wise, you could cut it out. Emotionally, it's critical to the film. Yeah. Also, because he's getting older. Yeah. So it says, right, when we come back after that uh, fade to black, it says some years later. Some years later, yeah. So it doesn't say how many, just says some years later. And we see an older Ben Kingsley, an older Gandhi, and having this, you know, kind of almost, uh, what, renewal of the vows type thing as they're yeah. showing that, which I think is, as you said, it's very sweet. Um, and it's our way to be reintroduced into Gandhi now who's older. And yeah. so there are certain things that he's looking back on now fondly as old people do. Yeah. And again, I am so persuaded that Ben Kingsley is this age. Oh, yeah. Like, I, there's not a moment where I go, oh, that's good makeup. I don't have that thought at all. I'm just like, well, that's Gandhi now, you know? You're 100% correct. We cut to beautiful shot, Gandhi looking out over the water, and Walker comes to find him and says, I'm trying to keep up with you is like chasing a jackrabbit. <laughs> My city is a sea city, always full of Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Jews, Persians. My family sect was the Pranami. Hindu, of course. But in our temple, the priest used to read from the Muslim Quran and the Hindu Gita, moving from one to the other as if it mattered not which book was being read as long as God was being worshipped. That's, man, that is central to Gandhi's philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Because of how he was raised. Yeah. Right? There's a long kind of slow look, and then you can see the wheels turn yeah. in Ben Kingsley's head. And he smiles. And I love, it's great to have such a great actor like Martin Sheen yeah. to play off of. Because he says, wait a minute. You know what you're going to do, don't you? And Gandhi, with that smile that's just so damn charming, says, It would have been very uncivil of me to let you make such a long trip for nothing. And he jumps up with all that energy. Where you going? Come. Where are we going? I'm going back to the ashram. Then I'm going to prove to the new viceroy that the king's wit no longer runs in India. And then we hear salt. And we cut to Sir John Gilgood. The greatest stuffy British actor ever. Um, and I think this is a year after Chariots of Fire. So yeah. here he goes again, playing a kind of stuffy upper crust British person. And it's great to see this uh from john gilgood because he's so good at playing roles like this so uh remember i said that richard attenborough said that other guy was the greatest british character actor yeah <laughs> he says john gilgood is the greatest british actor period yeah a lot of people felt that way at the time for sure for but sure. so i would have i wish i had seen i these i've seen him in a dozens of roles like this one you know, where he plays that great British stuffy guy. I never, I would have loved to, it must've been amazing to see his leer or something like that. You know well, what I yes, mean? Yes and no, because I mean, Gilga was also kind of the person people pointed to as the newer generation came around about Shakespeare that kind of uh, made people afraid of Shakespeare because they mm. couldn't do it in the lofty way that Gilgood could. Right. So in a way, he indirectly kind of affected how people approach Shakespeare. So other generations of teachers had to kind of deconstruct that. And it's true because I certainly fell in that trap because I watched Gilgood on PBS. Hmm. Uh, and, re and now you can find Gilgood on like YouTube or listen hmm. to his – you can listen to him on radio at least, at least on YouTube, like the audio of his performances. I think they're available on YouTube. And it is very lofty. It's still emotional. It's still him living the life of the characters in the piece but it's certainly uh, to be or not to be. There is more right. of an, uh, you know, approach. Cool. 
It's a style, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Like you would find in the 1940s or 30s or 20s of American actors, there's a style and actresses. Right. There's a style. So it does that. But yes, I agree with you. It would I would love to have been in the theater. Yeah, that's to what I mean. see him do Shakespeare. Oh yeah, of course. Salt. Yes, sir. He's going to march to the sea and make salt. There's a royal monopoly on the manufacture of salt, sir. It is illegal to make it or sell it without a government license. And it's going to be like a two rupee tax, which is what he's avoiding. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, this it's not important. I say ignore it. Let them raise their damn flags. Let him make his salt. It's only symbolic if we choose to make it so. General Edgar is right. Ignore it. Mr. Gandhi will find it takes a great deal more than a pinch of salt to bring down the British Empire. <laughs> this is uh, important words. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're getting ready for the march. Gandhi's there, and so is Walker. And he says to Walker, that's the Martin Sheen character, you've done me a great service. Not at all, sir. It would be uncivil for us to let you make such a long trip for nothing. <laughs> Which, of course, is a reference to what he said before. Yeah, exactly. Little go. Long live! Long live! And I love that Ben Kings, how fast Ben Kingsley takes off. Yeah, it's a joy. And then we have the march. This is this conversation you mentioned before. Yeah. Um, where Walker asks, is it all over if they arrest you now? The function of a civil resistor is to provoke response. And we will continue to provoke until they respond or they change the law. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, for all the elevated stuff in uh, Gandhi's approach to things, he also was a master and shrewd politician. Yeah. And understood what needed to happen here. And then we have this march where it gets bigger and bigger with that incredible Ravi Shankar music. Yes. More and more people join into the march. And you can see communities are coming out to watch that. And kids are climbing up trees to watch the march. And people are cheering as they go, which absolutely did happen for Gandhi's March to the Sea. But also did happen as they're filming Gandhi because all the towns came out to watch the shooting <laughs> and Attenborough said, Hey, well, since you're here, why don't you walk along a little bit and be our extras, which they did. Oh, that's great. And the music is building as Gandhi is marching. And then we finally, we reach the sea, by the way, this particular area of beach yeah. was a Roman Catholic community, which I didn't realize how many, that there were so many Roman Catholic communities in India. Right. And the way they got permission to do this was they built two schoolrooms for the, the church. Oh, that's sweet. And that's how they got all these extras to come out. And they're all Roman Catholic extras. And there's a shot of Gandhi's hand as he lifts up salt. Men need salt as he needs air and water. This salt comes from the Indian Ocean. Let every Indian... Claim it as his right. And we fade to black and white in newsreel footage. And so, once more, the man of nonviolence has challenged the might of the British Empire. And the film runs out, and we see that John Gilgood and his other, you know, British officials are watching it. They're making it everywhere, sir. Mobs of them, publicly. Congress leaders are selling it on the streets of Delhi. We'll be made fools of, sir. Around the world. So much for the advice of ignoring it. Yeah. We're required to stop it. And stop it, we will. I don't care if we fill the jails. Stop it. Arrest anyone, any rank, except Gandhi. We'll cut the strength from under him. And then we'll deal with the Mahatma. Wait, he says it. 
Then we'll deal with the Mahatma. <laughs> <laughs> and we see more people making salt. We see Nehru, who's now obviously older. And we see soldiers riding through these crowds, beating people with clubs. Yeah. Including Nehru, who gets grabbed and beaten. Yeah. Yeah. And as he's getting grabbed, he yells, don't hit back. No violence. Because he sees a younger member cock his fist as if he's yeah. going to and stops him. Yeah. Which, again, if someone starts beating me, it's going to be real hard to not make a fist. Yeah, I almost want to try that out one day. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to arrange for someone to start beating you and see what happens? No, I want to lead a movement and lay the, and let, you know, kind of walk into it in a nonviolent way and see what happens. Well, we're coming to a, the scene that is the most remarkable version of that possible. Uh, we're back with our British officials and we hear that 90 to 100,000 people are under arrest. Ugh. Where do you put that? There's no way there's enough room for that in the prisons. Then he says flatly that he personally is going to lead a raid tomorrow on the Darasana Salt Works. Thank him for his letter and put him in jail. Yes, sir. It will be my pleasure. And Fields. Sir. Keep that salt works open. This is another one of those scenes, you know, like the massacre, that's just mm. unbelievable and powerful and, and literally painful to watch. Yeah. We see the salt works. We see people lined up. And the other thing that we see happening is a bunch of people laying out first aid equipment. Yeah. Because they're preparing for what's about to happen. Yep. Last night at midnight, they took Gandhiji from us. They expect us to lose heart or to fight back. We will do neither. And slowly they walk forward, approaching the soldiers. It's super stressful. Um, and they come up to the guards and Martin Sheen is there watching this whole thing. And he crosses himself. He can't even look. He turns his back to it. Cause yeah. He look. Um, and Miraben is there also watching yeah. and they get to the gate. No, sir. The gate is closed. And they push him away. And then the guards raise their clubs and beat the first row of men. <laughs> and the clubs have steel tips. So that's why you see what you see here in the next sequences, Steve. And the men go down and the women come up and pull them out of the way. And the next row of men walks up, <laughs> takes the beating, gets pulled away. And the next row and the next row and the next row, man after man, bleeding and wounded, dragged away. And another group of peaceful non-cooperating individuals bravely step forward to take their beating. And it goes on. It's, it's like the massacre. It goes on and on and on. I, I think this is the most profound demonstration of nonviolence I've ever seen. Wow. Just knowingly walking forward to take a beating. I love that Attenborough and the producers and the studio allowed this scene to stay in and let it go as long as it did. Because sometimes you can see a scene like that and you get the gist of it quickly and they cut yeah. it, they cut away. To let it go on, to show you the dedication, the determination, the willingness that people, these people had to fight nonviolently, um, to stress the point, is incredible. You know? um, and as this continues, you start to hear Martin Sheen's report, him him yeah. dictating his story over the phone. And his performance, I think, is amazing. Oh, yeah. They walked, both Hindu and Muslim alike, with heads held high, without any hope of escape from injuries or death. 
It went on and on into the night. Stop. Women carried the wounded and broken bodies from the road until they dropped from exhaustion. Stop. But still, it went on and on. Stop. Whatever moral ascendancy the West held was lost here today. India is free, for she has taken all that steel and cruelty can give, and she has neither cringed nor retreated. Such a fantastic line. Yeah. And it's a shame that Walker's not an actual real person, but an amalgamation of yeah. reporters. But I would love to have read that article, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's such an incredible line. When Martin Sheen came to India, by the way, and particularly, I think, in Calcutta, and he saw all the poverty, uh-huh. he was so profoundly moved that he just he gave his entire salary to poverty in India. Wow. He, said he, made, he made no money on this movie. Wow. Yeah. I, it's just, it's an incredible, incredible sequence. Yeah. And then we cut to another, these huge buildings of the British and a car and a motorcycle pulls up. And then we see Gandhi's sandaled foot walk up the stairs. And I, the camera pulls back and reveals just as Churchill described him, this little man in a loincloth. Yeah. Walking up against the power of the British empire. Yep. And Gandhi still, was he meets Gilgood is still has that polite, Oh, yeah. cares about the other side in this weird way. He says, I am aware that I must have given you much cause for irritation, Your Excellency. I hope it will not stand between us as men. Mr. Gandhi, I am instructed to request your attendance at an all-government conference in London to discuss the possible independence of India. Wow. I can't, I mean, those words are... Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, And then we cut to newsreel footage of Gandhi, faked newsreel footage of Gandhi going to England. Yes. Um, There is real newsreel footage of exactly this, and they duplicated a lot of it. Yeah. Um, Gandhi did not change his clothes despite the very cold uh, English London weather. But we hear that he met people like George Shaw and Charlie Chaplin. He had tea with the king at Buckingham Palace. He visited factories. We see Mirben there. We see an older Charlie Andrews, uh, Ian Charlson there. Yes. The prime minister said later that the talks were both constructive and frank. So farewell, Mr. Gandhi. And bon voyage. And we see him in black and white, wrapped in some warm clothes on cloaks on the deck. And then we dissolve to color to take us back out of the newsreel into the real world. Gandhi says, and a lot of people say he made the choice of essentially to go to go alone to London and to not bring Nehru and Jinnah and Patel and all the other, you know, other leaders of the Congress. And he says, and a lot of people said that was a big mistake. Really? He needed support. He needed more support. Oh, you know, Um, so it might have delayed. Yeah. The independence. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, Maybe he felt because he had grown up or he had been, you know, trained in London or whatever that he maybe he had a better grasp of what might come up. Yeah, it, it sounds like it didn't it didn't move forward as quickly as he had hoped, which is what we hear from Jenna when we come back. So the truth is, after all your travels, after all your efforts, they've stopped the campaign and sent you back empty handed. They also do a nice job, by the way, of aging everybody else. Yeah, yeah, true. Jenna and Nero and they are preparing for war. Because we're heading into World War II. I will not support it, but I do not intend to take advantage of that danger. That's when you take advantage. 
No, that is just another way of hitting back. And as they're discussing, you know, world politics, a kid comes up to say that one of the goats is limping again. <laughs> and Gandhi talks about making a mud pack and says, uh, go, I won't be a moment. And he runs off to take care of this goat. Yeah. And this is where I go, man, dealing with Gandhi must have been, he's such a pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, I get, you know, it's like, I can still be narrow, like, like, dude, I get it. I understand what you're doing here, but can't we, can, can someone else deal with the goat right now? You know? That's so funny. I got it. But Jesus Christ. Come on, man. <laughs> Work with me. Work with me. Um, By the way, one of the other criticisms of Gandhi is he reached out to the Japanese to make a yes. deal during during world war ii yeah like he you know what we think about the way he handled things in world war ii maybe you know there's some criticism there well churchill accused him of working with the axis powers during world war ii because he'd reached out to japan but you know i think of it now of course in 2022 people were having issues because desmond tutu was reaching out to the soviet union when he was trying to break apartheid in south africa so when you're when you're a put upon uh, enslaved or um i don't know controlled people you will seek help yeah. from whatever government is available out there because you don't have a dog in the hunt for you it's about getting out of this situation then we'll deal with who our allies and enemies should be in the in this new reality of our country but until we get out of it we have no space to be beggars and choosers well, and at that time, Japan is taking over huge swaths of Southeast Asia. Right. And so talking to them, they easily could have come and taken over all of India. That's oh, certainly yeah. impossible. So talking to them makes sense. Also, you know, how much Gandhi knew about atrocities in, in China and things like that committed by the Japanese, I don't really know. But I do think, you know, again, we want to present the whole picture. Yeah. This is an area that, you know, because, because particularly because we frame World War II as just a battle against evil. Right. And I think largely there's tr that's true. And so having Gandhi even make any kind of overtures to the other yeah. side, you know, is uncomfortable. Gandhi's at a train station. Again, a soldier walks up and says, I have been instructed to inquire as to the subject of your speech tonight. The value of goat's milk in daily diet. But you can be sure that I will also speak against war. Sorry, sir, that can't be permitted. Corporal, stop! And so he, they're going to arrest Gandhi, and then they go to his wife. It's all right, Mrs. Gandhi. I have orders to return with you and your companions to the Mahatma's ashram. If you take my husband, I intend to speak in his place. And so Gandhi gets arrested, Mirabin and his wife all get arrested. <laughs> and then we hear... Hold on a second, will you? And we meet Candace Bergen. Yeah. And her driver... John Ratzenberg. It was the Aga Khan's palace before they turned it into a prison. They're holding Gandhi and a number of the leading Congress politicians in there. Is that a different voice dubbed in? That does not sound like John Ratzenberg. Oh, yeah. Voice. No, yeah. It's absolutely a different voice dubbed in. Yep. That was a when people go back and watch, because obviously he's in um what? Empire Strikes Back? As mm, one yeah. of the, Yeah. So yeah, when he shows up here, it, it is a different voice dubbed in. I don't remember who dubs his voice, but yeah, it wasn't his voice for whatever reason. It's it's so bizarre that a guy who, you know, is an yeah. extremely successful voiceover artist has good one of the point. great voices of all time. <laughs> you dub his voice. Yeah, that's a good point. And again, he just dumps a whole bunch of exposition on us of what's gone on. Uh, 
Candace Bergen is playing a very famous photographer named Margaret Burke White. Yep. Uh, whose pictures were Life Magazine, Time Magazine, you know, one of the most famous photographers of the time. Yeah. Here's how this came about. Richard Attenborough met Candace Bergen 15 years earlier on the Sand Pebbles. What? And as you know, he was working on this project since like 1962. Right, right. right, So he talked to Candace Bergen about Gandhi, um, who also is a photographer, and talked to her about this part. Wow. And they kind of made a deal that she would play this part. Well, 15 years later, she's become a, a, a star. And he's going like, well, I, I mean, she probably won't want to do this little part to come over the movie. And of course, she absolutely did want to do the part. Wow. Uh, and came to shoot it. Um, and so we're at the Aga Khan's palace, which is the prison, and she's taking pictures. Yes, I have heard of Life magazine. I've even heard of Margaret Bork White. But... I don't know why either should be interested in an old man sitting alone in prison while the rest of the world is blowing itself to pieces. They have a very fun sort of joking relationship, I think. Well, yeah, it's an American relationship, right? Yeah. Whereas the Geraldine James one is more Mm. of a kind of a noble English old school relationship. This is more of an American Frank relationship in exchange because she does challenge him at times. Yeah. Um, in this, and maybe that's why, for me, I kind of don't like this section of the movie because I really do enjoy everything up until Candace shows up. Who's a fantastic actress? I love yeah. her. But there's an American frankness that creeps in here that kind of removes a little bit of the epicness of the movie here as we get into these scenes with her, uh, and just the scenes with her, by the way. Uh, so that's on me, though. You know, just like I don't last like the last 20 minutes of Goodfellas when you actually have to pay the consequences for this life you've been living. It's the same kind of thing here, getting an American to come in and deliver a more of a frank approach as opposed to more of a uh, kind of noble approach or bigger approach or epic approach. So let me keep repeating myself. but just that's what I'm saying. I, I would not presume to tell you why you're feeling what you're feeling, <laughs> but I actually think it's very different from Goodfellas, and I completely agree with you. I yeah. think that the movie drifts at this point. Right? I, th- I think this yeah. is it's, – it's not just that it's the Americanness. That does, that's not a thing for me. Yeah. It's that this is entirely expositional. Yeah, really yeah. There's really drama going on. We're just kind of talking about what's happening in the world. I think that's world. a great point. It starts to drift a little bit, and you're like, okay, what, what are we just going to talk about stuff or experience stuff? Yeah, yeah. I get points. There. And we're kind of setting out, you know, talking about what's happening as the war is ending, and right. Jinnah has gained some power, and um, and we hear about, you know, poverty in India. And there are some great lines. Gandhi says, Poverty is the worst form of violence. I right. think that's a good line. Yeah. But the, and this moment is good, where she asks, but do you really believe you could use nonviolence against someone like Hitler? Not without defeats and great pain. But are there no defeats in this war? No pain. I don't think nonviolence works against Hitler. I I I, lo- I love Gandhi and I love the concepts of nonviolence. Yeah. I don't think it works to stop the Holocaust. In my opinion. No, no. What you cannot do is accept injustice from Hitler or anyone. You must make the injustice visible. Be prepared to die like a soldier to do so. Later, she's talking with his wife. Bapu has always said, there were two kinds of slavery in India. One for women, one for the untouchables. And he has always fought against both. 
It's not true. He has didn't always fought against right, 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 right. But as we said, his views did evolve, and he did fight for rights of untouchables and for women. Yes. In Hindu philosophy, the way to God is to free yourself of possessions and the passions. Bapu has always struggled to find the way to God. And this is the only nod to celibacy in the whole film, I think. Yeah. Do you mean that he gave up married life? Four times he tried and failed, but then he took a solemn vow. And he's never broken it? And the response is great. Not yet. (laughs) This moment is moving and powerful. You see a Red Cross truck show up. A soldier, you know, an officer comes in who's obviously a doctor. And we are at the bedside of of his wife, Katsuba, and she is dying. And there's this moment where Gandhi starts to say, it's time for my walk. Every day he would take a walk. And she holds his hand, and then there's a look, and he realizes he cannot leave at that moment. And there's just this slow dissolve to a high angle. The doctor is there, examines her, and it's very clear that she's dying. And then there's just this shot of Ben Kingsley, man. And it got me, man. Just what an actor can do in just a moment like this. Yeah. So much emotion and power. The despondency. Yeah. The despondency in that. Because, I mean, you know, she's was there from since he was 13 years old and put up with him walking this path and doing all the things that he's done. And we as an audience have fallen in love with her. Because Attenborough has used her perfectly throughout the film. Yeah. And after this really solemn and solitary and, for me, really moving moment, we again have that hard, jarring cut to the propeller of the plane and the arrival in a huge ceremony of Lord Mountbatten, who will be the last British Viceroy of India. And to me, it's so powerful coming off of the death of Gandhi's wife, to hear him say, We have come to crown victory with French to assist at the birth of an independent India and to welcome her as an equal member in the British Commonwealth of Nations. I am here to see that I am the last British Viceroy ever to have the honour of such a reception. It's interesting to me, by the way, that Lord Mountbatten, Richard Attenborough knew him. You know, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. they, I would imagine so, because obviously Richard lived a long life. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and this is this is who introduced him to Nehru, you know. Wow. Yeah. And then we cut oh, to Jinnah mm-hmm. lighting a cigarette. And this is where I don't know enough to mm-hmm. say who Jinnah really was. I haven't done that level of research, but yeah. there's no question that this movie frames him as the at least the antagonist if not the bad guy yeah um antagonist certainly i don't know if the bad guy because it doesn't stop the independence movement no um, no he's definitely for the independence movement right but but and you can understand i think now with 2022 eyes although the movie doesn't give you enough to kind of jump into jenna or understand jenna's point of view you can understand that jenna was you know defending a small minority of people in comparison Right. And was afraid that they would get swallowed up um, with the overwhelming majority of the Hindu. I mean, 
you know, we see all the time people in smaller groups who feel the need to, you know, push back harder or stronger or be defensive or defensive of uh, these situations because they're being proactive in trying to make sure that they are not stepped on or pushed around or have their rights removed. Um, and I wonder if someone besides Gandhi had been in power, how this could have gone. Do you know what I Because they were the minority. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Gandhi was the one with Jenna that facilitated. And again, I don't know if people can correct me. Facilitated giving Jenna Pakistan, creating the Pakistan situation, causing the. Um, well, no, he was against Gandhi was against Pakistan. He was against Pakistan. OK. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. No, he he wanted there to be one India. Right. The, the, so the, was this Jinnah pushing to have a separate Pakistan? Yeah. And going from there. OK. Got because it. he felt, you know, as right. you said, the Muslims were a minority and, the, yeah. you know, there is tension between these religions and has been for a really long time. But I, I think in terms of just to talk about the filmmaking of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that the casting of Jinnah. I yeah, mean, the yeah. guy has a great look, like yes. what, are, you know, but it's a severe look. You know, it is a, it is an intense kind of stern face. Yeah. He's always presented as wealthy, you know, which of course yes. he was. But so where our other kind of heroes, Nehru and Patel, they, they are dressing like they're following Gandhi's lead of not yes. showing a lot of wealth. Jin is yeah. not. Jin is always separate in terms of the way they shoot him. He's yeah. always smoking a cigarette. He's always in a suit. And so all of those filmmaking things are yeah. setting up that this is someone we're not, we're going to have conflict with, you know. Gandhiji, I'm not concerned about the independence of India. I am concerned about the slavery of the Muslims. Please, please, Mr. Jinnah. I will not stand by to see the mastery of the British replaced by the mastery of the Hindus. Again, this fear that, you know, they're going to be pushed aside. And. You know, his fear is clearly justified and continues to be justified today. Yeah. And Gandhi says, again, trying to make peace. Muslim and Hindu are the right and left eye of India. No one will be master, no one slave. And I love Jinnah's response. The world is not made of Mahatma Gandhi's. I'm talking about the real world. <laughs> yeah. Sadly true. The real India has Muslims and Hindus in every village and every city. How do you propose to separate? And Jinnah, you know, gives the proposal, well, where there's a majority Muslims, that's going to be Pakistan. Where there's a majority Hindus, that will be your India. Yeah. And the problem is that Muslims are the majority in different parts of the country. Like, how is this really going to work? Let us worry about Pakistan. You worry about India. Yeah, you know, it struck me watching this scene this time around, Steve, you know, as we've spoken about on my shows and occasionally on this show, you know, this idea of the growing resentment within our own country politically. And yep, how would I mean, there are similarities to what you see here, you know, people like, well, if the majority is conservative, then it will, you know, this, they will own that state. If the majority is Democrat, they will own that state. So it's like, there's a real kind of feeling like if there is a, there have been a lot of people who've been talking about separating America into two separate Americas and this idea of somehow moving people from, you know, from the middle of the country to the coasts. But how's that possible when both the coasts are, uh, considered liberal for the most part. And this is what Nehru says, you know, yeah. there are Muslims, there are Muslim majorities on both sides of the country. How the hell can you, 
Uh, and of course that leads to the, uh, the great separation. So it's just like, it's fascinating to consider this something I would have never thought at any point when I've seen this movie has never occurred to me, this thought yet this time around, it really did. It came to me pretty powerfully as I was watching this scene. No, you're absolutely right. We hear it all the time. Like, you know, yeah. California should secede and just be a yeah. liberal place. Right. Texas should be secede and be a conservative Florida. place. Right. You know, but, but, you know, just as you said, it's like, well, Texas is a more conservative state, but Austin, the capital of Texas, right. is a liberal city. Yeah. You know, the, yes, the big cities in California are basically liberal, but, the east side of California, the farmlands, the mountains, that's all super conservative. Yeah, and the north as well. Some areas yeah. of the north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like this idea of like, oh, we'll just, you know, well, and the idea, because it's it's predicated on the thought that we can't live together. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, exactly. um, as opposed to what Gandhi wants is, no, we we need each other. We have to find a way to live together. Yeah. Um, and Mountbatten brings them in. For, I love that Gandhi pats Mountbatten on the show. Me shoulder. too. That's yeah. such a great move, right? Like, you're a young man, but I appreciate you doing this, even though you don't know where it's going to lead, you know? Well, and there's also this sort of, it's not, do you see what I'm dealing with? But it's sort of, this is really hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I don't envy you type of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and this is just so painful, I think, Yeah, is we return to the ashram, and outside of the ashram is a crowd of Hindus and I believe they are chanting death to Jinnah. Yeah. And you just think of this man who has just dedicated his life to peace. Yeah. And having people outside his house yelling death to the guy he's trying to make peace with. Yeah. You know? And, and it's fascinating, Steve, because the film makes an abrupt turn after his wife dies. Yes. Right? It's an abrupt turn and it becomes much more uh, tragic and sad. Yeah. Because of how this all ends up. And we do see still the power of Gandhi. Oh, yeah. In his later years, which we're going to talk about as we go through it. But like a majority of this back half or back section of the movie is sad, even with the occasional moments with Margaret Bork White or the occasional moments, you know, where he has with his kids or whatever, or even the touching of Mount Button's shoulder. Like there are moments, but for the most part, it's kind of. A tragic thing that happened. I think it's I, it is fully tragic yeah, because yeah. you spent this whole movie going, "We're going to get independence. If only we get independence, we want yeah. to get independence." And then in the moment of, "Hey, guess what? You got independence." Yeah, it's going to be the worst, most terrible things that happen in the entire film. Yeah, and I love, by the way, as as, as fortunately that chanting stops, that the the daughters are or the nieces are helping Gandhi up, and he in great grumpy old man fashion says i'm your grand uncle but i can still walk either of you into the ground and i don't need to be pampered in this way finish your quarter of spinning so great yeah it's really great and then and then and again ben kingsley is just amazing yeah. at this progression you know um and they get in the car and they're driving past the protesters who beg him not to meet with jenna yeah and his response this line has been in my head since the first time I've seen it. I, it's like it like burnt itself into my head. Gandhi says, I am a Muslim and a Hindu and a Christian and a Jew and so are all of you. What an amazing idea. It is. What an amazing idea to have. Yeah, exactly. And we see it's our first glimpse, I believe, that scene of the gentleman who will kill him later. Yep. In the, and of course, the weird guru 
with the hair that never speaks, but yep. you imagine is influencing this whole he's situation. The, he's the leader of these radical Hindus. Yeah. yeah. Um, this line, it's so funny because, you know, obviously I've said many times I'm an atheist, but that central idea yeah. of I'm a Hindu and a Muslim and a Christian and a Jew and so are all of you has shaped how I see religion, mm. you know, which is that I see anywhere you can get wisdom from, you get it. And the connections right. between religions are actually way more powerful than the differences, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, the big stuff, charity and caring and compassion and honesty and sacrifice and all that stuff. It's in all the religions. Yeah. You know, it's just the details that are different. Um, and by the way, I just found this interesting is someone asked Gandhi near the end of his life, which religion did he think was the most uh, true mm -hmm. or was true? And his response is fascinating, which is he said, well, we could probably say that Islam is the most true because it's the most recent and therefore we have the most accurate data on what happened. <laughs> Which is a very scientific kind yeah. of answer. Yeah, sure. You know? Sure. Um, and, and as you said, we see the assassin listening to this moment. When you wave those flags and shout, you send fear into the hearts of your brothers. That is not the India I want. And then the intensity of his next lines. Stop it. For God's sake, stop it. We're in a high angle and we're watching what looks like a moment of prayer between Gandhi, Patel, Nehru, and the Muslim, Malana, mm -hmm. and standing over them, not praying with them, of course, is Jinnah. If you finished your prayers, gentlemen, perhaps we could begin our business. And Gandhi does this amazing, and I think impossible, you know, he does this thing that's just mind-blowing, really. He says, My dear Jinnah, you and I are brothers born of the same mother india if you have fears i want to put them at rest begging the understanding of my friends i'm asking pandaji to stand down i want you to be the first prime minister of india what's so crazy about this is this was really true gandhi with no political position yeah was actually the kingmaker is that yeah. he he could just decide who was going to be prime minister. That's really true. Well, you can do that at the beginning of a country, I would imagine. And of course, he doesn't say, I'm going to be prime minister. Right. And then he goes on. To name your entire cabinet, to make the head of every government department a Muslim. And man, the reactions that go around the room. Yeah. Bapu, for me and the rest, if that is what you want... We will accept it. But out there, already there is rioting. Because Hindus fear you are going to give too much away. If you did this, no one would control it. No one. I'll tell you what moment this I relate this to, and it completely doesn't make sense at all, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. This is him going to put the mud pack on the goat. <laughs> and the reason I say that, is that it's this is where Gandhi is just nuts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like completely like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, because this is not he's and yet he over and over again has demanded more than anybody thought possible and gotten it. Yeah. True. And now this is the moment where he's he can't. It's too yeah. far. It's too far. 
I mean, can you imagine in this country, whatever side of the political divide you are, if yeah. someone went to the other side and said, you be the president and put all of your people in charge so we can have peace. Yeah. I mean, would anyone stand for that? No. No, well, some people might, but overall, I don't think they wouldn't stand for it at all. It is your choice. Do you want an independent India and an independent Pakistan? Or do you want civil war? He was trying to find a way out of this situation. Yep. And in maybe the final... At least in the movie depicts it. Maybe the final solution was to do this to appease Jenna to show that, like, hey, we're not looking to create a civil war here. But in the end, it's, you know, it goes where it goes to the Great Partition. Well, and, you know, it's not like there weren't a lot of Hindus who didn't want Muslims around. Right, exactly. You know? Oh, yeah. No, very true. Um, and then you get the sequence again. The scale is tremendous. Of we see the flags being lowered, the British flags being lowered. At yeah. first, we see the Indian flags raised, and then we cut to Jinnah, and we see the British flags being lowered and the Pakistani flag being raised. And then, in what I think is just a gorgeous piece of storytelling, you cut to an empty flagpole. Yeah. At the ashram, and the camera tilts down to a lone, solitary Gandhi quietly spinning. I love the empty flagpole. Yeah. Because he is not participating in the in the partition. The kingmaker that doesn't want to be king, nor choose a side. And well, I think there's a power in that. And is not happy with the direction that things went, you yeah, know? Exactly. He, and then we cut to, and this is just so horrible, is India-Pakistan border, August 1947. And we see these huge lines, these caravans, these columns of people moving in opposite directions. And this is partition. Yep. I mean, it's it's those people in the city of Austin making their way out of Texas, you know, and people in California leaving California <laughs> and walking by each other. Yeah. Um, and we see, you know, Muslim women in burqas. We see Hindus traveling in the other direction. We see a wounded child in someone's arms and parents weeping. And an angry father looks up at the other group. And honestly, I don't remember if it's a Muslim or a Hindu at this yeah. moment that starts it. And they throws, throw rocks. And then there's just chaos as these two columns attack each other. Ten to twenty million people were displaced along religious lines, and this particular sequence, I think, is meant to symbolize the numerous moments of violence that happened while the partition was going on. And the numbers are several hundred thousand to two million people died. Died, yeah. Uh, and it was supposed to be, and it's considered one of the greatest refugee crises ever as well. So, I mean. It's just kind of insane to think of. I have never thought about the partition. Even when I've seen this movie numerous times, to me, it's just like, okay, they're just going to different places and they get into a fight. I never knew about partition until I saw Ms. Marvel. Right. And then I was like, oh, what is this all about? And this is what in, inspired me to text you that one day and be like, we got to get Gandhi as soon as possible into the rotation for t this year. And I'm glad we're talking about it because I didn't know about all this and how what a devastating um, decision this really was um, and that they're still um, 
you know, battling over this or fighting over this, or the divisions are still very strong between Pakistan and India, the, on the borders and what have you. So, you know, it, it still has ramifications today, unfortunately. I mean, l- literally the two nuclear powers who probably have come closest to war are India yeah. and Pakistan. Good point. Yeah. I mean, no, it is, right. it is real, real. So both on a personal level of yeah. Hindus and Muslims and on an international level, the scars of this moment go real deep, you know? Well, and, and I mean, it, you know, I remember, you know, when Watchmen was on HBO yeah, yeah. and the world found out about the Tulsa massacre, yeah, you know, I, I had and, no idea about that. And, and you go like, how many horrible tragedies are we ignorant of? Mm-hmm. And the answer is lots. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I saw a tweet the other day from someone who was pointing out the numerous massacres, just like the Tulsa massacre that has occurred in our history and the years and the cities on a map. And I hadn't heard of any of them, any of them. And it's just like, what are we actually teaching? You know, and the history, why are people so afraid of history? I, I just don't understand uh, to me on so many levels because learning your history, as I said, if you don't learn your history, the people have said many times, you're doomed to repeat it. And so learning our history does not, um, how can I say this, does not um, influence us to hate ourselves. It's to be aware of ourselves so that we don't fall down the same path again. Uh, and that's so important. Um, so, you know, to me, I'm, I'm not trying to make a stance here. I just think as much history as you can consume about your own country, you should, so that you can know how everything, I mean, I, I don't resist a good historical documentary on any channel, history or PBS or whatever, because there's so much to enjoy. And certainly when we did the civil war series, it was phenomenal. And I bet if Ken Burns went back to do it again, he would do even more. He would yeah. he would add even more information, and it would be a completely different series with much more perspective than than was there when he did it the first time, which would be fascinating, you know. I think I think the Civil War documentary, obviously, it's a movie you and I both love. Yes, is that it's a perfect example of doing it right because yeah, it's like a lot of the history we were taught, we just cast ourselves as heroes. Right. You know, right, right, right. And when you cast yourself as the hero and you go, well, I'm the hero of the story, that makes you a much more dangerous person. Yes. I think. Right. Because you're much more likely to do the shitty things because you're so convinced of your own righteousness. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you if you see that, oh, we're flawed, you know, that we have done great things and we've done not so great things. And it's and even not going, it's we. It's just that's what history is. Yeah. Well, that will teach you to be more careful, I hope. Yeah. Um, the, this scene uh, with this, you know, the beginning of partition is so brutal, so terrible. And I'll tell you, it, I go back again to Lawrence of Arabia because it reminds me of the Turkish column, mm-hmm. you know, in its tragedy and oh. its inevitability. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And then we cut to Gandhi and they're telling him about the horribleness that's going on. Millions on the move. Calcutta's like civil war and that we don't have enough soldiers to keep the peace. And then Gandhi just walks out. Yeah. Papu, please, where are you going? I don't want to hear more. We need your help. There is nothing I can give. Where are you going? Calcutta. Which is the heart of the most violent parts of partition. 
And so we're cut to Calcutta and there's explosions and there's crowds and there's violence and there's police trying to keep the peace. And Gandhi is on a rooftop and the British officer is saying, I don't have the men to protect you. Not in a Muslim house. Not this quarter. And he just says, I'm staying with a friend of a friend. Yeah. Well, and it's in a weird way, it parallels to me that first time when he's just beginning in India and the soldier comes along and, you know, says, I don't want any trouble. And he says, I'm an Indian traveling in my own country. Right. How could there be trouble? That's how he's treating this, you yeah. know? Yeah. I'm staying at a friend. What's the problem? Why are you staying at the home of a Muslim? They are murderers. They kill my family. Get out of Calcutta, Gandhi. And they start chanting death to Muslims. Yeah. And I imagine this is Gandhi's family who's around him now, right? His kids and... Yeah, and Miraben is there. Yeah, Miraben is there. Yeah. yeah. And looking out over... And I love the shot of them looking out on the rooftop to respond. Yeah. And then we see a newspaper article that says, Gandhi, fast unto death. And now you have gained weight. You must join me in the fast. <laughs> and Patel, who's always funny, says... If I fast, I die. If you fast, people go to all sorts of trouble. To keep you alive. <laughs> and Nehru, wanting to get Gandhi to stop, says, hey, this has helped. Some people have stopped fighting. I'm glad, but it will not be enough. The end of this scene is so powerful because they're trying to save his life. Yeah, yeah. Basically. You know? Don't worry for me. I cannot watch the destruction of all that I've lived I mean, look, you know, I risk sometimes my opinions... Uh, some of the pushback or blowback, but the way Gandhi is seen in these last few minutes of the movie is at times frustrating to me because it's like, you wanted this to happen. Now that it's happening, here is where you walk away. Here is where it gets too hard for you. Here is where it's too much. And it's like, this is where you have to punch the ball across the goal line. And it's supposed to be harder. Um, you have a whole field to get to the goal line. Once you get to the goal line, the defense is stacked in there. There's less yardage for you to maneuver in. It looks easier, but it's much harder than you think. And so you're going to have to be inventive and crafty and take all the hits so that you can get across that goal line. And Gandhi seems to be, be like, we got all the way down here. Why are you all doing this? When it's a little bit convenient to me ignoring that there were divisions already within this coalition and to have ignored some of the violence or some of the outbreaks of anger that had been happening um, as this whole um, independence movement was, was going on. So to constantly walk away or to constantly move away from it, or I can't, I don't want to hear anymore. I know you have every right to not hear anymore, but I mean, this is all coming about because of something that you did indirectly or directly so part of your responsibility is that you have to be there to guide uh, people across the goal line. So I don't know. For me, it seems a little uh, flawed that he couldn't do that or had issues or hesitation to do that. Um, well, and blaming it on other people being upset about it or blaming other people for having fights or wars or whatever. It's like, this is human. You know humanity, you know. I, I think I think I have a bunch of thoughts. The first yeah. the first is he, he is fighting back in the way that he has from the beginning, which is literally putting his own life on the line to right. try to shape what how people behave. Right. 
But I also go like, I think Gandhi's faith in humanity yeah. is has both is both naive and has been proven right. I think yes, both of those true. things are true yeah, because yeah, yeah. this is there were Hindus and Muslims who were slaughtered in that massacre. Yeah. There were Hindus and Muslims marching up side by side to take the beatings at the salt factory. Yeah. Like everything that they've accomplished, they've accomplished because of Hindus and Muslims working together. Yeah. And so Gandhi has seen that, yeah, you know, yeah. and so and now right at the end, and I, I was going to say this a little later, but one of the things that history tends to show is that when you get rid of a dictator or when you get rid of an oppressive power, yeah. chaos happens next. Yeah. You know, whether it's the French Revolution or the fall of Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq or all over the world, you, you know, at the end of the revolution, bad stuff usually happens. That's why it's a miracle that this country was ever created. It really is a fucking miracle. Yeah. You know, because um, it could have easily... And maybe we're seeing it now, you know, 400 years later, but it could have easily devolved into that as well here, but it didn't. And it's one of the rarities. And, and the French Revolution doesn't count because that was already a thing. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it wasn't, it was already a country for many years. This is, we weren't around for that long before the revolution and the ideas of revolution happened. And so this is what I come back to um, in my mind, you know. Well, the big difference, and this is what it took me reading Alexei de Tocqueville's Democracy in America mm. before I understood this, which, by the way, is one of those it's one of those books that you hear about forever. Yeah. You know, and then and I actually finally went and listened to it. And I was like, holy shit, this book is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I thought it would be it actually applied, you know, this book written in the 1830s <laughs> or something of this French guy traveling around America is actually like, whoa, this is exactly about America today in these weird ways. But the thing that he says and the difference with the French Revolution and all these other ones is that Americans had actually pretty much been governing themselves the whole time. Right. Already. Already. So it wasn't so, that much of a transition. Yeah. Exactly. Because England was far away. And yeah they, yeah, they did stuff we didn't like. But we you had governors and all those people were already running the colonies. Yeah. As opposed to in France, where they kicked out all they, you know, they executed all the lords and the bureaucrats yeah. and everybody else. And now you just had a bunch of angry peasants who had never governed themselves. Right. And things went pretty nuts, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, the the but you're, I agree with you. It is a miracle that that we were created. Nehru comes back to where Gandhi is, is going up to see him, and we hear someone yell, "Death to Gandhi!" Oh, that's such a great moment. Death to Gandhi! Who dares say such things? Who? You killed me first. And I love that they go to a handheld camera here. Yes, and there's just looks at those blank faces. Yeah, he comes up to see Gandhi. And he says he's brought this man who is this Muslim who started the fighting yeah. and is now telling the Muslims to go back to their homes and lay down their arms. But it's it's not enough. And Nehru says, what do you want? That the fighting will stop. That you make me believe that it will never start again. <laughs> I go, Gandhi is so difficult. <laughs> Gandhi G is dying because of our madness. Put away your revenge. What good will come of more killing? Have the courage to do what you know is right. For God's sake, let us embrace 
like brothers. And standing next to him is the Muslim, Milana, who we saw at the salt factory. And then this next scene. Because at each stage, they're saying, hey, things are better, Gandhi. And he says, it's not enough. Yeah. And then we get this scene where it's like Gandhi. It almost feels like Gandhi has woken up out of a fevered dream. And now standing around his bed are these bloody men with swords. Machetes. Yeah. And they say, and they drop the weapons at his feet. And they say, it's all promise. We stop. Hindu swords. It's a promise. Then they start to walk away, and this man walks up. Walks up? No. This man pushes his way through. Yes. Yeah. Um, And it's scary. Like, you know. Yeah, right. Everybody's on edge. Yeah. Yeah. And he drops food on Gandhi's chest and says, Eat! I'm going to hell, but not with your death on my soul. Only God decides who goes to hell. I killed a child. I smashed his head against a wall. The pain on Ben Kingsley's face to hear these words. Why? They killed my son. My boy. The Muslims killed my son. And Gandhi says, and man, this messed me up. Oh, yeah. This scene. He says, I know a way out of hell. Find a child. A child whose mother and father have been killed. A little boy or boss, this high, and raise him as your own. And the guy's taking that in, and you can see him going, I, I think I, maybe I can do that. You know what I mean? And then Gandhi says, Only be sure that he is a Muslim and that you raise him as one. It's messing me up right now, just thinking about that. This scene has always messed me up. I mean, always. From the first time I saw it as a kid to even now, you know, and through times in my life where I feel like I've, you know, done bad things and God will hate me or, you know, those things that you kind of instilled in you as you were Catholic, you know, that moment where he, like, he's in so much pain. It's such a fantastic acting job by this actor in such a, oh, yeah. just a short scene. But you can tell the way he bullies his way up. You, there's... There's a mania in his face that is incredible. And throwing the bread on his... I mean, this is Gandhi, but you're throwing him bread. That's how deep you're into your mania that you don't respect and you know reverence. That's all out the window now because you've got nothing left to live for. So what do you care? And the back and forth with Gandhi is incredible. And Gandhi's um, advice to him the look on his face is one of just incredible shock of something like I'm go- There is a way out, but it will take every single cell in your body to do this. If you really want a way out of hell and you're right, Steve, I cried watching this scene again because you can tell that there is a real, just oh, something he had never considered overwhelms him in that moment. And it's a mixture of shock and horror and also, wow, I'd not considered that. And he starts to walk away and then he runs back and just unleashes all this emotion on Gandhi's feet. And Gandhi, you know, touches, tries to say, stop, stop, you know, like I'm no one to be worshipped in this way. Just like the 
told his family, don't, don't fuss over me. Leave me alone. You know, it's that same thing. And so it's such a beautiful scene, even though it's a heart, a, ter- a terrible scene to hear what he did, you know, to kill a child in this manner, you know? Well, and it's, I don't actually believe in hell. Well, I believe that in <laughs> hell of our own making. Yes, sure. Fair. Yeah. Um, and I, but I go, yes, Gandhi has said the way that is the way out of hell. However you, whatever it is yeah. that and the, and man, you're right. The hardness of it. Yeah. Like the, what that means. And yeah, it's so powerful. And then there's, there's always a way out. It's just going to match or go beyond the severity of what you did. Yeah. And that's if you want the way out, that's the way out. Yeah. Do you think he does it? Yes. I think his breaking down at his feet lets me know that he does it because he's not crying. He's crying from a place, obviously, of loss, crying from shame of what he did, Mm -hmm. but also crying because of gratefulness that Gandhi has proposed something to him that he might do in order to get out of this situation in his mind. Right. Yeah. Um, And so, yes, I do think he does it. And even more so after Gandhi is assassinated, maybe there's even more motivation. And obviously this is a fict. I don't know if this actually happened, right? We don't know. But like, I would imagine this, he would have even more motivation to do it in honor of Gandhi's death. Here's how I'll put it. I really, really hope he did it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't, I can't, I don't know, but I really, in my version, in my head canon, he does and does it. Well, and this goes back to interracial families, you know, all the time, like this idea of, okay, you want to adopt a black child, but are you going to raise the black child as a black child? Or are you going to raise the black child as a, if you're a white family, if you're going to raise him white, what, how are you going to raise the child? And there is a grow, there is a feeling that you should raise him or her in the culture yeah. he was raised he or she is was born into and so that's the you know uh, there's a lot of arguments one way or the other on that and i think it's always fascinating to explore that i heard i heard a woman interviewed african-american woman who mm. was adopted raised by a white family mm. in what sounds like a very very white environment yeah very loving environment right. um and she had written i think she'd written a book about it and she managed to say a thing that was really complicated which was i love my parents they were great parents. Yeah. They really did this wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they, they it, it was a true betrayal of my identity that they didn't incorporate anything about, you know, yeah. my background into the way I was raised. Yeah. Um, it but but it, it was amazing because she said it without being horribly mean to her parents, who she yeah, obviously yeah. loves. Yeah. We cut to quiet. The streets are quiet. Shots of Calcutta emptiness no violence and miraben comes to gandhi and says it stopped the madness has stopped it's foolish if it's just to save the life of an old man no in every temple and mosque they have pledged to die before they lift a hand against each other nehru's there and Patel is there. All the people are there telling him it's true, except no Jinnah. Yeah. Jinnah's not there. Mulana, my friend. Could I have some orange juice? 
By the way, on this particular fast, when Gandhi started it, he weighed 109 pounds. Yeah. When he started the fast. Yes. Gandhi, not a big dude. Not a, not, not a large animal. Yes. When he finished, he weighed 90 pounds. Oh. Now, you know. I need to fast more. Yeah, I mean, right, yeah. if you, you or I losing 20 pounds. That's not much. Like, <laughs> it's, not, good. it's good. It would it's... probably be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Gandhi losing 20% of his body mass Oof. when he was already just 109 pounds. Not a good thing. Yeah. I mean, he was really, really sick. Near death. Um, and then we see people walking in grass and in this more lush environment. And I don't know exactly when you clue in to where you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. but w- initially the movie opened for you and I like a month ago yeah. um, <laughs> with watching yeah. from the assassin's perspective, him coming up to murder Gandhi. And now we're going to see the same sequence, but we're going to see it from Gandhi's perspective. Uh, and Candace Bergen is there. So you really are going to Pakistan then? I'm simply going to prove to Hindus here and Muslims there that the only devils in the world are those running around in our own hearts. And that is where all our battles ought to be fought. I almost kind of go, if there's one thing you're going to take away from this film, that line wouldn't be a bad one. Yeah, no, that's a great line. I agree. When when I heard it again, I was like, "Oh God, wow, that is such a strong line." You know? Yeah, I, I I really it's it's so funny. Uh, for the Star Trek show, we're about to do "Let That Be Your Last Battlefield," which is the episode with the white on one side, black on the oh, other yeah. side about racism. Episode. Right, right. And the thought, and, and then I I have some notes for it that I actually started taking a long time ago because I think it's a fascinating episode. Mm-hmm. Is that I didn't know that I was I was referencing Gandhi when I wrote this down, which is I said. You know, mostly with racism or anti-Semitism, people don't hate someone for being that color. They hate the story that lives in their mind about what it means to be that. That's oh, what they hate. Yeah. Um, and and then I see this quote from Gandhi and I was like, oh, I was just referencing him. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's the trying to say your writing is equivalent to Gandhi's statement. Is that what you're I'm saying? saying my writing is plagiarizing and derivative <laughs> of this great person. <laughs> <laughs> um, but listen steal from the best that's what yes, I, that's, of course that's what I always it's a, it's a standard industry term <laughs> so what kind of warrior have you been in that warfare oh not a very good one that's why i have so much tolerance for the other scoundrels of the world and we're starting to walk out uh and then she talks to miraben who says he thinks he's failed why my god if anything's proven him right it's what's happened these last months i may be blinded by my love for him but i believe when we most needed it he offered the world a way out of madness but he doesn't see it neither does the world and she goes back to spinning um and now we're behind him and now i think you know you know if you didn't know before you know now yep and we see the crowd part before him, and there is the assassin. Yeah. And it's just what we saw at the beginning. He clasps his hands. He goes to his knee. He, you know, knocks over that thing and stands up and fires. And we cut to black after the gunshot in here. Oh, God. Oh, God. We see fire in slow motion, out of focus, and the camera pulls back, and we see the funeral pyre of Gandhi. And then 
would cut to a shot of a boat in the water, and we hear Gandhi's words. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it. Always. And the camera moves through the flowers on the water for a long time, and then we go to credits. Yeah. And says Mahatma Gandhi was played by Ben Kingsley. We've reached the end of Gandhi, my friend. We have gone on our journey through Gandhi. Yeah. Finally. Six um, years on the show, we finally did it. I, I think this is, you know, a, a true epic in the way that Lawrence of Arabia is Hell a yes, true epic. A, yeah. I, mean, I mean, obviously, the scale is ridiculously huge. Yeah. But also, it has that personal element. You know, mm-hmm. with Lawrence, you start with his death and end with, you know, who are you? Yeah. As, he, as he rides away. It, they're both sort of small endings you know for huge huge movies yeah uh the first cut was four hours long oh, i want to see that cut. i know you do <laughs> i don't <laughs> <laughs> and they started with a limited release and then it just became a huge huge sensation not the biggest movie of the year by far um <laughs> because right. that is the movie it came up against in the oscars so uh gandhi received 11 nominations for picture director actor screenplay art direction cinematography costume editing and makeup uh score and sound so that's a lot of nominations richard attenborough was absolutely certain it would lose yeah because he, the movie it was up against was et yeah and Attenborough said, and I, you know, sometimes people say self-deprecating things. I totally believe him. He says he thinks E.T. was the most remarkable piece of directing he's ever seen, and that Spielberg should absolutely win as best director for E.T. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is actually, you know, we mentioned that on Patreon. People mm-hmm. can ask questions about some of the films we do. And this one comes from Mike Shea, who says, Attenborough said that he felt E.T. deserved to win Best Picture over Gandhi. Do you agree or disagree? Why or why not? I know what I already know what I think your opinion is going to be. Yeah. So go ahead first if you want to go first. Um, I think E.T. is not my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. No. I think if you want to study film craftsmanship and storytelling, E.T. is among the best. It is like perfect craftsmanship. Mm. But I don't love the film as much as other people love the film. And for me, Gandhi is absolutely the kind of movie that should win best picture that should win best picture because it is big and important and i think those those should be best picture i think et's great but it's not it's not what gandhi is for me and and i know probably a lot of people out there are like no et's my favorite movie and i don't know what the hell you're talking about <laughs> so john what do you think yeah i mean we we have for the history of the top 10 show we have endured barbs and shots over the fact that we will never put E.T. in our top 10 of Steven Spielberg films. It just isn't one of our favorites, even though we both, to a person, believe it is a good movie. We just don't think it's the best of Steven Spielberg for sure. In fact, Jaws is always battling for number one on my list, and certainly it's out now in 3D, I think, by the time this comes out, or it had just it had come out in 3D and an IMAX, so I'm definitely going to go and take a look at that one in 3D and see what it looks like. Um, 
that's what I think about when I think about craftsmanship in a in a Spielberg film. E.T. rarely comes to mind for me when I think about craftsmanship. And I've seen it a few times, and I don't know why. But I know the story is fantastic, and the story really works, and it's moving and touching. And, you know, I'm not a Goonies fan, but although I don't put E.T. in the top ten, I will defend E.T. as a damn good movie that actually hits the mark that it's aiming for, which is oh, your yeah. heart. Which is your heart. And I think it does a great job of doing that. But I'm with Steve. And, uh, you know, there is that element of when you understand film and you love film and you know film, there are certain films that should win Best Picture. And this is one of those films that should win Best Picture and not Gandhi. Oh, not uh, not E.T. And and so for me, that's why I still believe Gandhi is the better film overall. And if you say everything is tied... How can you put the performance of Ben Kingsley above anything Henry Thomas or Drew Barrymore, D. Wallace, or anybody else in that film does? Even the E.T. creature, you can't. And that is why it wins. You know, honestly, if you were to say everything was even, craftsmanship, writing, cinematography, music, all that jazz, story. But in the end, this incredible performance, along with it being in an incredible movie, is what makes it stand head and shoulders above any other movie that came out that year, in my opinion. He, he, here's, here's the big distinction for me, yeah. which is that I think if you're a fan of film, absolutely, of course you should watch E.T., you should study it, it's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think every human should watch Gandhi because it's important for them. Right. That's the difference. And it's e. one of the the- rare biopics that's actually kind of accurate. So. Yeah. And it's like, we need to think about it today. I don't go like, man, you know, the problems in the world would really be solved if everyone went and watched E.T., you know. (laughs) But I do think we actually could address some problems if we really think about this film. Uh, Yeah. Uh, By the way, the year is kind of amazing. So so Ben Kingsley, of course, won Best Actor, deservedly so. But he was up against someone we just talked about, Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie. Yep. Which is an incredible performance. Yeah. Jack Lemon in Missing, which is also an incredible performance. And Paul Newman in The Verdict, which incredible is performance. performance. Yeah. And Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. Yeah. <laughs> which maybe isn't at quite the same level, but it's an incredible performance. I mean, that's a great year of best actors. I love that movie, My Favorite Year, so much. Me too. And Peter O'Toole's performance is fantastic. And how ironic that he would beat out Peter O'Toole in a film that's very similar to Lawrence of Arabia. Right. I find that to be fascinating. And I wonder if Peter got a kick out of that as well when he was thinking um, about it. I, don't I know. feel like we've spent a ton of time in the early 80s, but I would love to do my favorite year, either for a live show or for a regular show. But maybe sure. maybe we need to get out of the early 80s for at least a, a little <laughs> while before we jump back in, but I'm I, done. Maybe a Patreon-only show where we just talk about it for like half an hour or 45 minutes just for the patrons. That's sure. a possibility as a new benefit for some of the higher end patrons that could be something we could do as well down the road and in uh for best director in addition to going up against steven spielberg it's going up against someone we just talked about mm-hmm. which is wolfgang peterson for das boot oh yeah and uh Sidney pollock for tootsie and Sidney lamette for the verdict so these are i mean this is a good year of movies people forget about the verdict and that's one we should definitely do we've talked about it since day one yeah. i haven't seen it in a long time it's oh it's so good great fucking oh. movie we have another question that relates to this. This is from Anthony Pomus. Okay. Uh, and after making a joke about the Gandhi loves Tootsie skit from the 1980s HBO show, <laughs> not necessarily the news, which actually I feel like I need to look up on YouTube. 
He he asks, on my most recent rewatch of Gandhi, that it is more the filming of an astounding lead performance by Ben Kingsley than an astounding work of cinema on its own. Oh my do God. you th- do you think a film like 1982's Blade Runner, which is the same year, yeah. is a better work than Gandhi from that year? Does that explain why Ridley Scott's film, A Flop Upon Release, has remained more popular than Attenborough's film, or is this merely a form of filmic fashion within the medium? Thanks, gents. It's a great question. First of all, I disagree with your premise, but you're more than welcome to make that comment and statement. But my overall belief, the reason that Blade Runner is revered, and and listen, is it that revered? Blade Runner 2049 crashed and burned at the box office as well. So it is revered within a certain contingent of film fans, and it may feel like it's revered across the spectrum, but it isn't as revered as you might think. But for those of us who love it, we love it. But it's a noir. It's a different, it's a sci-fi noir. So for me, although the technology is incredible and what they're, what's discussed and what happens in the film is phenomenal, this is a more important film. So therefore, it deserves the Oscar. And yes, people aren't going to come to it. And I'll tell you why. A, it's about an Indian, not about a, a, an American. B, it's a story historical thing. And most people that I know um, kind of push back against history stuff. Unless it's a, unless it's a, a ship getting sank in the middle of the ocean somewhere by an iceberg. Most people stay away from history epics uh, in conversation. Uh, and I do think this is an incredibly well-directed film with some phenomenal moments and scenes and visuals uh, for you to enjoy. And a tender story about a great man. As you said, uh, Steve, earlier, an individual story that touches you as a person when you're watching it, even though it's about this man who appealed to millions upon millions of people. So in that way, I think that's why it is it deserved the Oscar and it still deserves to be in esteem. But I think that's also the reason why many film people don't necessarily turn to it. And you can't give me Lawrence Arabia. That's a white lead. There's a difference here. You have a person of color lead, an Indian and a foreign lead. It's just different. And uh, I think people... Uh, film people don't gravitate to it like they should for a mixture of reasons, but it's not quality. It's not the issue with quality. So the first thing I, I agree with pretty much everything you said, mm. the first thing I would say is, man, 1982, it's a, just a ridiculously good year. Cause great year. It talking about all those Oscar nominations. We didn't even mention Blade Runner. And also that's the year of the wrath of Khan. That's Khan. the year of the thing. That's the yeah. year of just a whole bunch of great movies. Yeah. Um, here's what I think. So the first thing I think is that one of the Oscars that uh, Gandhi won beat out Blade Runner, and that's Best Art Direction. I think Blade Runner should have won. I think that's fair. I will agree with that. There's Because there's just, and not that the art direction in Gandhi isn't unbelievable. It is spectacular. But it didn't invent a world. Right. Whereas Blade Runner does invent one of the not only amazing worlds, but one of the most influential worlds in all of cinema. You know? Um, I think it is an amazing bit of direction, but I'm going to go pretty much with what I said about E.T., which is absolutely this is a great movie and you should watch it. But it's yeah. not important. It's de- I would say Blade Runner is deeper than E.T. is. Yes. Um, but neither of them are important in the way Gandhi is. Yeah. Um, but thank you, uh, Anthony. Thank you, Mike, for your questions. Thank you for your support on Patreon. Something that I say at the beginning of every show we do is the influence it has on us today. Mm. Not this film. This person changed our world. Yep. Whether it's Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela 
um, the whole way we think about conflict, and a standard that we continue to fail to live up to. But we aspire to it. Absolutely. And that's important to have things to aspire to, whether you fail or succeed, because that gives you that feeling that we are capable of more and that the possibility still exists. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, so at the turn of the century, Time magazine was trying to come up with their person of the century. Yeah. Gandhi was the runner up to Einstein. And what, what's interesting about it, and I'm not going to disparage Mr. Einstein, that guy who was pretty important, Einstein would have disagreed. Probably. And I bet Gandhi would have disagreed if you had made him number one, too. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> they, both, they both probably would have disagreed. Is it wrong that I just thought about a fist fight between Gandhi and Einstein? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Einstein, I think. Maybe. You take the award. No, you take the award. No, you take the award. I just want I, a fight amongst um, a fight from humility would be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I just have this image of them in a boxing ring <laughs> with Einstein with his hair and Gandhi and his, you know, homespun clothes. <laughs> It would just be a battle of philosophy with the occasional shot thrown. That's what it would be. It would just be that. Well, Gandhi would just stand there and let himself get hit. I mean. Right. Probably. And Einstein would be like, look, I don't want to hit you. Don't. You better fight back. It would just be a whole. Einstein would be like, I don't want to go nuclear on your ass. Because, <laughs> you know, he invented that. I'm going to tell you how fast my fist is going to hit your face. <laughs> well, right, speed, speed, is, speed, is relative, <laughs> speed is relative, John. I mean, Speed is relative. Um. Oh, we're in so much trouble. It's because it's such a deep film and heartbreaking <laughs> film. We had to have a little bit of levity. Listen, so we, we've got a long time on this movie. Yes, we have. But not to bring it down, but that is exactly what I'm going to do because there's something really important I feel we have to talk to before we wrap up. Oh, yeah, sure. And that is that what is happening today in India yeah. relates specifically to what we have been seeing in this film. The current government under Neandra Modi is extremely anti-Muslim. To the point of there are rules for new citizenship being proposed, making Muslims literal second-class citizens. So all of the things that Jinnah was concerned about, yeah. they're happening. Yeah, And and not only is that happening, but the I, directly from Neandra Modi and then from a lot of people in India, they are really trying to rewrite history in terms of who Gandhi was. Yeah. It, always right i don't we don't want to be shown as one thing therefore uh we're going to change the history of something so that we look better what a surprise we see that happening here in our country this idea of don't teach that kind of history don't teach these what these people did our grandfathers and grandmothers did in horrible ways or our great-grandparents and grandmothers did in horrible ways no 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 teach this more sanitized, whitewashed version of history. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Um, again, there's nothing tyrants or rulers feel more than fear more than education. An educated populace is the most dangerous um, thing to despotic rule. And it's unfortunate. It's and, and I was reading that the even the person who assassinated Gandhi over the last few years, there's been this movement to essentially canonize him and turn him into a patriot there have been movements to build statues there are the statues man. oh there they're are over statues. A, well, there, there are no, over a dozen statues, statues of his assassin throughout that's india that's fucking insane 
this is just recently. This is yeah. this year. Yeah, right. Uh, vandals with link to, links to right-wing groups have defaced pictures of Gandhi. They've attacked his memorials. They've scrawled the word, word traitor on his statues. There was a statue June of last year of Gandhi was decapitated in eastern India. People have come from miles around to spit on Gandhi's grave. Jesus. That's what's going on in India. And yes, statues to his assassin. That's insane to me. And And again, it's... Because this man, they cannot measure up to this man in any way, shape, or form. And he reminds them of their inadequacies. So they must defame him and destroy him and criticize him and spit on his grave because they are um, lesser than. And he reminds them of how lesser than they are, which fuels their anger. And and that's a sad reaction, to be honest with you. It's a terribly sad reaction. Uh, to someone who was so great and influenced the world. And they wouldn't even have a fucking country to do this in if it wasn't for Gandhi. So. Yep. I, it, it makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, I mean, I just can't, the world in which someone would put a statue up to the guy's assassin and spit on his grave. Yeah. You know, um, I, here's, here's what I'll guess my final thoughts are is first of all, let's just talk filmmaking. Ben Kingsley's performance is one of the great performances of all time, bar none. Agreed. Absolutely incredible. The scale of this movie is absolutely incredible. You know, it has the what we believe is the largest scene ever filmed, which is Gandhi's funeral with 400,000 people. Right. I mean, it's a the scale is massive. It's beautifully and artfully done with great performances across the board, and it does a, is as we said, is it perfectly accurate? Of course not it does a really good job of trying to tell this story. Um, so that's on, on the filmmaking side. It's well worth your time. It's a really great film. Yeah. On terms of the person, but you and I talked now extensively about it. Neither of us think that Gandhi was perfect. Right. Obviously both looking at it from our time and our perspective, but also looking at it. Yes, there's things about him that were difficult. I think one of the things we need to do is not judge people just based on our standards today, but judge them based on who they were trying to be. Yeah. And Gandhi, more than anyone else I can think of, was seeking personal perfection yeah. in, in a, as a component of the changes he wanted to see in the world. When he makes that speech about fight the battles in your own heart, that's what he did. And it's because he fought those battles that he was able to be the kind of person that he was. And that's, and to me, that's my big final thought is we are so angry today and we are so filled with hate all the time and that we have battles to fight in our own heart. And like that guy who had to contemplate raising a Muslim child when Muslims killed his child, that's the hard work we actually have to think about doing. It's not vilifying the other side. It's it's destroying the villain that lives in our heart. That's what we need to do because otherwise we're heading towards partition. I mean, you said yeah. for years you think a civil war is coming to this country. Well, that's what it looks like. Yeah. You know, it is it is millions of people dying, it's children dying, it's untold suffering and scars that will live with us as long as scars have lived with us from our last civil war that we're still feeling today. So I think we have to at least, none of us are going to be Gandhi. We're not, none of us are going to be that, but we can aspire. Like yeah. we can try and we could 
think of finding ways to forgive and to sacrifice and to work on ourselves. That's, I guess, what my final thoughts are. Um, my final thoughts are: this is one of, as I've as we've said numerous or I've said numerous times, this is one of my favorite films ever made for so many reasons. The story just touches me as a person who aspires to be a better person, and I fail all the time, but I aspire and I fight and I struggle and I push through to try to be a better person. And the lessons that Gandhi has taught, lessons that Gandhi has tried to instill in people um, are one of the reasons that I want to aspire to this. And I see it all over the film. Uh, and it's great to see that. And the film gives me a window into who this person was, really who this person was. It's such an incredible performance, obviously a career-making performance from Ben Kingsley, Sir Ben Kingsley, in case he's listening. But also, <laughs> but also it's just showing you that no matter what your intentions are, as noble as they may be, sadly, there are other elements that can come into play here and – You'll have to adapt and improvise and troubleshoot and figure it all out because part of living together is not only just living with the person who agrees with you, it's living with the person who disagrees with you and finding some way to have a happy medium in those interactions and in that relationship, which is incredibly difficult. Uh, and I love that they show that here in this movie, along with the incredible journey of this man who comes from, um, you know, means, but certainly not top of the class, certainly not the most intelligent or the most capable initially. And just because he has a direction and a purpose that is pure, he finds his way through and he pushes through everyone telling him, no, don't do this. Don't do that. You're pushing too hard. You're asking too much. You're needing too much. He finds a way to keep pushing forward because he believes in the better men of humanity. He believes in the better angels of our nature to borrow a Lincoln and I think that's something we need more and more of today. And I think this film should resonate with more people. People should watch this film and let it resonate with them um, more nowadays than ever. Agreed, sir. So uh, that's what we think of Gandhi. Thank you so much for coming with us on this very long journey through the life of a remarkable man and through a remarkable film. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on social media, on Facebook, by doing a search for the Cinephiles, Cine underscore files on Twitter, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Subscribe to the show, please, if you haven't already, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. They still help us to this day. Oh, yes. If you want to support the show and listen to our Cinephile shorts or our upcoming watch-alongs or our dis private discussions that happen, you can do it at patreon.com slash the Cinephiles and even sometimes ask a question that will appear in the regular podcast. And if you want to buy Gandhi or any other movie we've ever reviewed, it's cinephiles.net. And to find me, it's srmorris1 on Instagram, srmorris on Twitter, and Enterprise Incidents for all your Star Trek needs. John, how do people find you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch. And my podcasts, my other podcasts, The Top Ten, uh, The Geek Buddies, um, Strong Style, and The Hot Mic that are out there for you all to subscribe to and enjoy. So I think you need to hit subscribe, 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 <laughs> not just on Apple Podcasts, but on every single podcast platform. Why not? That's a great way to support the show. Um, and I think that is it for this week. We will be back next week with another great film on The Cinephiles. <laughs>